All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a breaking news edition of We Gotta Talk. <laughs> Very little planning went into this except begging our guest today, Joan Davison, political science professor at Rollins College, to come back on and update us. So last week, we brought Joan on for the first time to talk about the broad brushstrokes of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And so much has happened. Maybe it was a week and a half, Joan, I can't remember, yeah. um, since then. But we thought it was important to pop on and bring everybody the latest from um, from this perspective. So again, if you're listening to this beyond today's date, which is March 15th, um, that some of this might be a little outdated, but just to quickly bring everybody up to speed, as of today, Russia and Ukraine were supposed to meet for peace talks. We have no updates as of the time of recording or of going live, how those are going. We have support from Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia um, in the form of their leaders actually flying into Kyiv to meet with President Zelensky. So that's another big development that's happened. We'll dig into that with Joan as well and what that means. And we also have the update of the Russian journalist walking in the background of a live Russian broadcast holding a sign that said no war, which is interesting and powerful, Joan, as we know, because um, it seems like the Russian people are getting fed an entirely different story of uh, the reason of this invasion in the first place. So three big points as we lead into this interview, Joan, but um, quickly just bring us up to speed on anything else that I may have missed. Big developments since we talked last on Russia. Well, I would say that, you know, Russia has expanded the um, area within Ukraine that's under attack. <clears throat> now, of course, that might cause, um, limit the area to which people can flee and stay within Ukraine. But on the other hand, from the Russian perspective, what it does is it dilutes where their forces are. So when they first attacked Ukraine, their forces were concentrated on the eastern border and along the southern border, along the coast, the uh, Black Sea coast, and coming from Belarus towards Kyiv. Now they've kind of spread their troops, in part perhaps because the um, convoy coming from Belarus and Russia into towards Kyiv moving south has run out of gas apparently which mm -hmm. is kind of humorous given that Russia is a major That's a great saying for this. Yes, yes. <laughs> so to speak. Thing. Yes. But um um you know so they've spread more thinly which might make it more difficult to be successful and give some advantage to Ukraine the Ukrainian forces. However, the only, I think, point of real, real concern here is that we've seen these Russian aerial bombings and Ukraine continues to argue that they can't be successful with the um, missiles and bombing from the air because they have no way to counter it. And if Russians are frustrated with their troops on the ground. We're going to see more of that. And there's even some talk about the potential use of chemical weapons, which is real distressing. Yeah. Okay. I'm. We're going to sit on that for one second, because what I do want to ask you before we move on to that, which sounds like a doomsday scenario, um, is why hasn't the invasion from Russia been as impactful or effective? Not that we want it to be, but um, th as many people expected. I think when the headlines first came out that they were moving in, that Kiev would fall within a day. And now here we are weeks beyond mm -hmm. and the Ukrainians are, are holding strong, not to say that a lot of damage hasn't been done and sadly a lot of lives lost, but I think it's, uh, I think they're putting up a stronger fight than many expected. What is that telling you about Russia and their well, strength? 
part of it, I believe, is that, I mean, there's a couple pieces. One is that President Putin seems to be, um, from all intelligence reports, largely waging this war alone, that he has substantially decreased his number of advisors who have access to him, and that those with access seem to know that they can't tell him much bad news, that they have to be supportive of his um, of his decisions. So, and that's, so that's point one. Point two, I think, with that is that much of the Russian army is conscripted, they're drafted. Okay, so it's not like the US professional military where people opt to join. There's also a very marked division between the professional officer corps and the conscripted soldiers, who many of whom don't want to be in the military, but they're yes. forced to. We've seen powerful pictures of that too. Young soldiers on the front line saying they weren't even sure about the mission they were intended to be on until right. they got into Ukraine. It's crazy. Right. There's a great deal of hazing. Um, the Russian military is known for hazing conscripts. And you are correct that those troops that have been captured said that they did not even know they were in Ukraine until mm. they were told. They did not know the mission and they did not know they were there. So I think there's a hesitancy on the part of the troops, maybe simply an instinct to protect oneself, but not necessarily engage in battle. Maybe you're safer if you don't engage. So I think that that's a reason as well. Um, why isn't it progressing as expected? I think what was expected, at least by many, though, is that all that Putin wanted was to take the region of the so-called Donbass region, right? Donetsk and Luhansk in the east, which already had substantial, had been undergoing a war since 2014, or at least we'd call it an international conflict with separatist forces being supplied by, trained by, um, aided by the Russian government. And mm -hmm. if you recall, that region was um, recognized as independent by Russia before they even attacked Ukraine. So if we're thinking about, okay, that region, Russia taking it over, uh, there, there's still resistance there, but they've been largely successful. So in that way, it's progressed as expected. But the notion that you can take over a whole country and it's much more difficult as you know the US saw in Vietnam or in Afghanistan, it's far more difficult to be on the offensive than the defensive. Right. Joan, tell us more about the um, the offer from Poland to uh, let us use their fighter jets, why we declined the offer. Bring us up to speed on all that. that was been, that's been happening over the past week and the significance of the no-fly zone and why that is such an important piece of the puzzle that Zelensky has been asking for. And beyond that, uh, why the U.S. and NATO refuse to comply or to go along with right. that. Okay, so... Um, as we said in kind of the introductory comments, Ukraine believes that it can successfully fight the Russians on the ground. 
but it does not have the capacity to counter them in the air. The U.S. and other NATO allies have been sending ground-to-air missiles to try to help Ukrainian military take out um, take out Russian aircraft and Russian missiles. The, Ru- the Ukrainians, however, feel they actually need fighter jets to target Russian aircraft and perhaps even Russian bases in the surrounding Russian and Belarus regions. So they feel that they need either aircraft to target or to stop the air attacks on them, a um, no-fly zone over Mm -hmm. Ukraine. So those would be the two options. How do you stop the um, Russian air attacks on Ukraine, which is what's the most devastating to them at this point? You either stop them by Ukraine having um, its own air force, and being able to, you know, have planes take off and fight the Russian planes, or by creating a no-fly zone and denying Russian military aircraft access to the airspace over Ukraine. Can I hop in with a quick question? Does that yeah. also mean that those Russian um, fighter jets would be shot down if there were a no-fly zone? That yes. gives the ground yeah. troops so the ability come, to yeah, attack. So this right. is why this is why President Biden has said no to a no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. If NATO commits to a no-fly zone, then NATO pilots are expected to shoot down Russian aircraft that violate the no-fly zone. And so if an American pilot shoots down a Russian pilot, from President Biden's perspective, well, we're in World War III. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Joan? Does that indicate the beginning of a more serious conflict? Well, I think it definitely indicates the beginning of a more serious conflict if any NATO pilot were to shoot down a Russian aircraft. However, I I think there's, you know, this is a very difficult decision, both about sending the Polish MiGs to Ukraine, as well as creating a no-fly zone. And I think that um, people supportive of the Ukraine can disagree on whether, on which decision is appropriate. So President Biden feels very much that this will simply escalate the conflict, lead to more deaths, not only within Ukraine, but elsewhere in the world. Um, And I think we have to be, I think we have to acknowledge that the U.S. intelligence on what Russia is doing has been you know, almost perfect continuously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my sense is that some whoever is providing from within Russia the intelligence about what President Putin intends to do probably has given intelligence to the U.S. intelligence agencies that then were reported to President Biden in National Security Council meetings, that this, you know, that he would escalate, that he would attack elsewhere. Now, some people say, look, if we don't, if NATO does not come to Ukraine's defense, and if we step back because Putin threatens us, then at every point he threatens us, are we going to step back? 
Right. Or are we going to engage him somewhere? And why not now while it's contained? So that's the counter argument. Why not now? And I think what Biden, as well as the general secretary of NATO and other leaders in NATO have argued is we will respond military, militarily to Russia if they attack a NATO member state, but not Ukraine. So okay. that's kind of the line they've drawn. I want to I want to go back on something you said, Joan, um, okay. the accuracy of intelligence so far um, regarding what yes. Russia may be doing next. Um, there's been a ton of criticism about Biden's response or what some perceived to be a lack of response to this invasion. That tells us that they obviously know a lot more than we do about what's happening. And like you said, indicates just a, some good intelligence happening. How? How does the leader, how does the leader of our country confer to us that we need to feel safe? Don't worry about World War III happening. I got this. Like, why haven't we been hearing more assurance from him in that regard, too? Not that the American people need to be updated because we're not as much as people in Ukraine do. But I, I just I feel like we're owed some sort of an explanation as to why there isn't more aggressive action being taken place, especially when we see pleas from Zelensky go all yes. across the Internet asking for more. At what point do we begin to actually figure out why Biden is making the decisions he's making? And when, if at all, do you think it moves yes. to that next step as far mm -hmm. as intervention? Well, first of all, I would say President Biden is a very, very different leader. Mm -hmm. And maybe he does need to step up and speak directly to the American people. He did to some extent in his State of the Union address, but he's a very different leader than, say, President Trump was, mm -hmm. who often spoke directly to the American people on all types of issues, including when he finally took over giving the COVID briefings. President Biden, every day, the Secretary of State um, Blinken is giving reports. The Secretary of Defense is giving reports. You can see the um, National Director of Intelligence uh, testifying to Congress. Now, the media may not pick up on those to the same extent, but there's information being given. I think President Biden is far more inclined to defer, defer to his experts, in part also not to make this about Biden versus Putin. Right. So so I think that's one reason. Um, secondly, I would say that, you know, President Biden leaving Afghanistan and leaving Iraq and leaving Syria wants to end America's wars. You know, he and, and I think that's part of the reason Russia, Putin, decided to attack Ukraine, that he believed right. Biden wanted to end America's wars. So now we've got you know, this war kind of in your face, and he wants to try to, you know, control it to the extent possible without America directly fighting the war. Um, and I think American public opinion supports the idea of not engaging in war um, mm. at this point still. Now, the other thing I'll say that's really interesting here is tomorrow, as we know, President Zelensky will speak directly to the U.S. Congress. Um, and I don't know what time that's scheduled for yet. But we should keep in mind that the U.S. Congress, even though they have often deferred to the president, especially since World War II, the U.S. Congress can declare war whenever it wants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's important to note that, you know, we, we hear voices 
individual voices from the Congress saying we need to do more and some saying we should establish this um, no-fly zone. But that's not the majority yet. And of okay. course, certain, certain members of Congress in the Foreign Affairs and Foreign Relations Committees are cleared for the high level of intelligence that Biden gets. Also, so we should keep that in mind. But I think it'll be really interesting to see tomorrow what the Congress's reaction to Zelensky is. Now, you earlier asked that question about the MIGs, and I do think that's a more viable option for the United States um, because, indeed, we have supplied Ukraine with other military equipment for this conflict, as have Germany and Poland and other states. So to supply them with military equipment is different, you know, than especially if we put it in terms of a sale. Mm -hmm. Now, during World War II, we had the Lend-Lease Agreements and where we claimed that, you know, before the U.S. entered the war, where we claimed, or was that World War I? But anyway, where we claimed we weren't giving one side weapons, we were selling them, but they don't have to pay for them yet. They'll pay for them in the future. And most of those were never paid for. So mm -hmm. I think there are ways to do this. Of course, these MiGs become critical because the Polish military no longer really wants them. They want the modern equipment that the U.S. can supply them with. The MiGs are the old Soviet Union aircraft. But Ukrainian pilots know how to fly them. So tr being able somehow to transfer those, either by giving the Poles, giving them directly to the Ukrainians or the Poles giving them to the Germans and the Germans giving them to the Ukrainians or giving them to, I don't know if there's a method, you know, how you could transfer them, but some way of transferring them. Mm -hmm. I think that um, would be a step that's more likely than actually creating this no-fly zone that NATO then would have to enforce. What do you perceive to be the most likely next step if there is an escalation of some sort? And next step, I mean, from an American perspective, what involvement do you envision happening as the likely next step if this invasion persists and these peace talks, air quotes, with Russia and Ukraine do not produce anything yeah. today? Yeah, I, I doubt they'll produce anything because Russia basically wants near total capitulation by which Ukraine gives up land in the east as well as promises not only not to join NATO. And I think Zelensky is willing to promise not to join NATO at this point in time because it's clear. He'll do anything. Well, it's clear NATO won't take him as a member. He's at, right? It's just, it's really sad, Joan. You know, we I use these crude analogies, but... I just, it's like the kid that wants to be invited to the birthday party. Can we just invite, he's begging now. He need. this is a literal matter of life and death. And I'm, I'm curious if you think this will change the trajectory even down the line of them joining NATO, because it feels really sad to watch the begging, the death, the cycle of destruction happen. And yet nothing happened in their favor. It's uncomfortable. Right. And, it's sad. And, and I, I think it's clear they're not joining NATO now and they won't be joining in the future. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so, so that's, you know, that's, I think, troubling thinking about it, thinking about them waging war on, on behalf of democracy, um, on behalf of 
the right to a state to be independent and not, you know, and not be subjected to efforts to change their independence and sovereignty by by force. But um, at the same time, I think, you know, that uh, it makes sense at this point in time, maybe not to bring them into NATO. If if NATO had brought them in during this, then NATO would be in the war, right? Yeah, but again, it feels like the right thing to do. I just, you know, you just articulated it so perfectly. This is a country begging for democracy, begging for mm -hmm. recognition that they are doing the right thing. And they are in protecting their people mm -hmm. and holding firm and in holding strong. And I just don't, again, a citizen's perspective, I just don't get, can't we let them into the club? I know it means that there's a higher price to pay, but the chance of conflict for other NATO countries immediately escalates. But at what point do we represent to the world the values that we stand for and actually try to protect and encourage democracy. Well, well, I think, you know, I think that this is a question that's been asked ever since the end of the Cold War in 1991 and for the last three decades is, does America fight to create democracies and protect democracy, or does it just try to create a democratic model and spread democratic values peacefully? Now, if democracy is actually under attack. Whose responsibility then is it to save it? And I think Biden has made clear it is not the responsibility of the U.S. alone to do that. The U.S. will only do that in partnership with other states, you know, at, at least during his administration. Seems now, like I a lot of people would jump in with us at this point, though, right? Okay. Well, that would be the question, would they? I mean, Biden, you know, Many people did not think that Europe would be willing to place the sanctions on Russia that they have. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about stopping the sale of all purchase of all oil and natural gas, which 40 percent of it for Europe comes from Russia. Um, Germany has increased its defense budget so much in response to this attack that Germany's defense budget now is more than that of Russia. Hmm. So I think other states have jumped in, but, you know, NATO has 30 members. And, you know, moving through this step by step is really difficult. And these are what the questions you're asking, you know, are questions which are being debated, I am sure, within the National Security Council, within Congress, among experts in the field. Um, and, and so they're being debated. It's not as if there is a clear response that will work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I suppose if the war stayed conventional, that is nuclear weapons were not used and NATO fought a war against Russia, I believe we could defeat them quickly. Mm -hmm. But the fear is that any war that started, that Putin facing defeat would use nuclear weapons. And so that's, I, I believe, the fear. Yeah. Now, again, the question is, would he use nuclear weapons? I mean, here, here's something that I heard uh, that was pretty interesting on a podcast a couple of days ago, and they had two people debating 
um, in sort of a panel discussion, what should be done next? And one was a little more aggressive in his approach, thinking the U.S. should take more um, sort of proactive steps. And the other one was more like what you're saying Biden is doing right now, kind of hang back, trust the intelligence, see what happens. But a really good point that the first person brought up on this panel was um, the value of being proactive in preventing a worst case scenario. If you can attack someone closer to the start line attack, you know, if you can react to someone closer to the starting line, you have less catching up to do when they have the ability to use bigger weapons, cause more destruction and hurt more people. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was a compelling point of view because while there is always inherent risk in any involvement from an, you know, an outside Mm -hmm. country here, it seemed reasonable to me to hop in where we can and sort of cut them off at the pass, for lack of a better term. Well, I, I think I think that's undeniable. Um, however, again, I'll go back. We don't know what the intelligence is. It seems to me that there is an assumption. And for a long time, I think most people made the assumption that Putin is rational. Yeah. Some people are beginning to question that assumption now because a rational person creates strategies Um, to increase their power or their territory in the case of Putin and Russia. A a rational individual or country creates strategies in which what they win, their benefit out of the situation is greater than their cost. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know, though, how Putin values cost. I think he has a Mm -hmm. very low value on Russian lives. Not just Ukrainian lives, Russian lives, right? Right. He's willing to send relatively untrained troops into Ukraine without them knowing the mission and let them be killed. So I think he has a relatively low value, you know, placed on Russian lives and, and also just the sanctions. You know, so what if people are being hurt economically? are losing jobs in Russia. So what? That's not, you know, he doesn't value, I would conclude, just looking at his authoritarianism, his willingness to use various kind of chemical and biological attacks on journalists and dissidents and and um, political opponents in Russia. Um, he doesn't value their lives necessarily. And I think his disinclination to value Russian lives has only increased over the past few years. And so, um, you know, normally we think when we think about nuclear war, we say, okay, um, a rational individual would not do it because Russia would also be destroyed. But if Putin saw himself going to lose this war, because of America's conventional attacks or NATO's conventional response. And therefore, at this point at least, saw himself perhaps being captured and tried as a war criminal. What would Putin do? Anything. Blow up the world. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, if I'm going out, so's the rest right exactly yeah he's gonna literally drop the bomb as he's being dragged out i mean that would be my guess and i think that's why um you know there there's this long-term interest now you know and and indeed ukraine has had a very interesting history over centuries in which ukraine has disappeared at one point all of ukraine was in poland 
And I think that's part of the reason people don't realize that the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, a kind of empire back in the 1600s, at one point controlled a lot of, well, it controlled all of Ukraine. Then later, Russian Empire grew and the Russians and Poles split Ukraine in half. And then later, um, Poland was taken over. So Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Prussian Empire in Russia split it. So for long periods of time, the identity of Ukrainians persisted, although they did not govern themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the Ukrainian people have a commitment to their culture and their history and their independence, such that even if Russia is able to take large areas and oppress large areas, we'll probably see a continuing, um, oh, what's the word I want? I intentionally don't want to say insurgency because it insurgency implies that they are not the legitimate people. Right. But we're going to see a resistance. That's the word. Right. We're going to see a resistance movement as we saw against the, the Axis powers in Italy and in France during World War II. So I think there's going to be a long-term resistance. And I, I believe that NATO sees itself and perhaps the European Union as well supporting that resistance. Now, the, the leaders who went, though, to meet with Zelensky today, Poland, um, Slovenia. Slovenia, and um, the Czech Republic, they very well might be interested in the European Union and NATO doing more than it is. But I think that at the same time, Poland, which, you know, I mean, the bombs that Putin dropped this weekend came 12 miles from the Polish border. So I think Poland, though it probably feels NATO should do more, Notice it doesn't want to do it. It doesn't want to give those planes to it, Ukraine. Right. It's like an international game of hot potato. Like you take it. No, you take it. No, you get that. It's just, yeah. It, it, yes. I, I see what you mean. It's, it's a desire for something to be done, mm -hmm. but the lack of um, desire to be the one to do it yeah. again, which is where America has historically stepped in. And I know there's going to be some people who hate this phrase, um, but to, to save the day, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that because there's yeah. a whole separate theory on American exceptionalism and we are not the great saviors that we perceive ourselves to be. But I'm only using that as an example and reference to for World War II, other times where American involvement has ultimately been a force for good. Well, well, I think that's true. But if we think about World War II, let's remember, it started in 1939. Some people would say even earlier, 38. The Holocaust was occurring. The U.S. didn't enter till right. the Japanese bombed us. I know. Well, we don't want that to happen this time, Joan, for sure. We don't want to have to get attacked on American soil to have a vested interest in helping Ukraine. But, either. but I think the lesson there, I mean, the lesson there is that the U.S. does not act oftentimes until it's attacked. Right. What do you think personally? What does Joan the person think about the level of involvement we need to be having in international conflicts when democracy and human rights are at stake? Not just because. OK, when democracy and human rights are at stake. First of all, I would say there's 
a huge distinction between international conflicts and civil wars. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think because some people are saying, well, we didn't, we, we didn't act as much in the Sudan or other countries and they're pointing to other countries and perhaps there's some level of racism there. Perhaps it's a more peripheral interest, but I also think what is a defining characteristic of this conflict is that it's clearly an international war where mm -hmm. one state attacked another state. And we have not seen that. We've, all, we've seen perhaps other states such as Syria. We know that Turkey and Iran and the US and the UK and the French and the Russians got involved in Syria, but it started as a civil war. So I think there's a big distinction there because part of <clears throat> what many states that are member states of the United Nations want to respond to is that there is a clear principle, in fact, some would say the foundational principle of the United Nations is that states do not attack each other anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, so so I think this, it, you know, separates it from other types of conflicts. So for the U.S. to go into, let's say, a country where there's a civil war and where the people in that country are fighting over, should we be democratic or should we be something else or what kind of economic system should we have? That's very different, I think, when it's among the people, unless you see widespread genocides occurring, um, than when one state attacks another. So I do believe that the U.S. should intervene now. Having said that, sanctions themselves are a form of intervention. Mm -hmm. Selling the transfer of weapons, um, high-tech weapons, are a form of intervention. Yeah. The fact that um, we are no doubt sharing intelligence with President Zelensky and his administration are a form of intervention. I do... I, I suppose I believe that we should find a way that NATO needs to find a way to provide Ukraine with MIGs and see what happens once they have mm -hmm. the ability to counter the air attacks. And that's going to be difficult for them to do. I mean, there are, is some question about that because if you're supplied with MIGs, then you need to have be able to defend the airports where the MIGs are on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why most, the best U.S. nuclear missiles are on submarines because they're more difficult to locate and attack, right? Oh, that's they're interesting. Always, I didn't always, know that. They're always moving. Right. You know, planes on the ground, unless you're, you have a very, um, a very advanced early warning system when missiles are coming in, pilots have got to scramble and get into those planes and take off. Mm -hmm. Now, you can keep, during wartime, planes are often kept in the air and rotated down to be refueled because you don't want all your planes on the ground at once, which is part of what happened at Pearl Harbor also, planes on top of aircraft carriers and things. So... You know, and these planes are going to have to cross into Russian territory and bomb their bases, right? So, but but it does seem, so, so this is going to be difficult to do, I think, even with MiGs. 
but I, I, I strongly um, support NATO finding a way to get the aircraft to Ukraine because I don't support at this point yet um, a no-fly zone. Now, if we start to see um, chemical attacks, right? Missiles coming in, bombs coming in with chemical weapons. You know, I think NATO has to reassess here. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. You mentioned that at the beginning. What are the chances of chemical attacks happening in Ukraine at the hands of Russia? And what evidence have we seen that Putin is willing to go in that direction as think, of today? I think it's very strong. I think it's very likely because, well, first of all, he's killing a lot of people with just conventional weapons mm -hmm. and firebombing and these, oh, I forget the name of it, these thermo something that sucks the air out of your lungs when it hits you. They're so powerful, they basically cause the individuals in the location of the bomb to, you know, basically suffocate. So conventional weapons are so advanced. Mm -hmm. um, you can target, I mean, you know, it's a crime to target civilians. We know he's targeting civilians. And he's successful ta targeting civilians with various kinds of fight fire bombs and these thermo bombs, um, cluster bombs. So, so, so he's got a lot in his arsenal there. Um, chemical bombs though, uh, you know, part of the question is too, how much does he have in his arsenal? When's he gonna run out? Who is, you know, how much is the Russian, um, military factories how much are they producing resupplying as as we move forward how quickly can that be done so but but i have no doubt that if it was necessary to use chemical weapons or if he perceived it as necessary he would cross that threshold because he supported the syrian government in their use of chemical weapons he's used um chemical attacks on individuals within individual Russian dissidents and opponents. Right. So, so I don't see that as a concern of President Putin's. I, I just feel like I could ask the same question for 45 minutes straight, which is like, okay, why aren't we doing more to stop this? Well, it'll be minute? very, very interesting. And at that point, do we do more? At that point, when more people are dead, when more innocent people are killed in hospital bombings and critical care centers, is, is that when we decide, you know what? I think we do more now. I mean, it's just, well, maybe maybe we would. I mean, here's my yeah. question again, and I think it would be very interesting to watch. Um, I personally am always disappointed by the fact that Congress criticizes the president but fails to act when they have every power that would enable them to act in this regard. Mm hmm. So, you know, when President Obama, after chemical weapons were used in Syria and he had warned Syria should not cross that red line, you know, he did not respond. Right. President Trump did respond, but he bombed basically an empty Air, Air Force base. Right. You know, he didn't really target the Syrian leadership. So it's it seems that, um, you know, after Zelensky speaks, 
you know, I'm very interested to see. It'll probably take a couple days of conversations within Senate committees and um, yeah. House committees. But what will Congress say? You know, and will Congress, they have the power to declare war. They have the power to pass resolutions that say, we believe the U.S. needs to create a no-fly zone. We believe the U.S. needs to sell MiGs. They have the power to approve the sale of MiGs. So Congress can do this. But, you know, everybody's worried about their reelection, unfortunately. You know, President it's Biden, worst. to a certain yeah. extent, President Biden will be in his 80s. Maybe he's the person least worried about re-election. But I think that, you know, if Congress came together and members of both parties and said, we believe this should be the policy, I think that would be incredibly powerful. So, you know, at this point, I guess I understand President Biden's hesitancy re regarding the no-fly zone and what he has clearly said it will lead to World War III and potential nuclear war. Um, I, I hope, although the State Department and Defense Department have been clear that the U.S. will not give the MiGs to Ukraine, I hope that in some way um, that particular tactic deal, whatever one wants to call it, can come to fruition. Um, I'm uncertain, you know, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, these are not countries with major clout mm. in the European Union. Poland probably has the most simply because of its population size. And in the EU, votes are by um, population. And probably also because Poland has been most committed to NATO, which, of course, is a different organization. Mm -hmm. But um, it'll be interesting to see what message they take back to the other leaders of the European Union and what they encourage. Mm -hmm. Here into your crystal ball here and um, let us know what you think even a week from now was the most likely scenario. I mean, I know that's asking a lot, but taking into consideration what we've seen, how we've seen the U.S. response so far, mm -hmm. sanctions, address the question too, Joan, if you don't mind, if you believe that sanctions were the right initial step and how they've been changing things over there. So cover that. And then what you think might be the likely next scenario and we could see happen there. I, I, I think the fear for a lot of people is that this is a slow and deadly war that continues, like mm -hmm. you said, with some level of occupation for months, I don't know, years to come. Is that likely? So that's kind of a two-pronged mm -hmm. question. Were the sanctions indeed enough, which is the question that we asked in the initial episode that we had you on and, and what you think could potentially happen next? Well, sanctions are primarily intended to punish, not deter. Mm -hmm. And so I think Russia is being punished by the sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that people who thought the so-called oligarchs would force Putin to change his strategy and his objectives under sanctions, that that was just silly to believe mm -hmm. that because the you know, the so-called oligarchs are a big, diverse group of wealthy Russians, some of whom um, support Putin, some of whom don't necessarily support Putin. They're just corrupt Russians who've made a lot of money and um, at least don't speak out against him. 
So, and, and we know that Putin the last couple of years has pulled his inner circle in very, very close. So probably the so-called oligarchs complaining will not make a difference. Yeah. So I, I do believe that um, it's critical to maintain the sanctions and to see them spread, to get more countries to participate. Lots of people are concerned about China. I, yeah. I, I'm concerned about India. India is supposedly... Yeah, they're they're ready to get some cheap gas, essentially. They're like, all right, right we see an in here. Yes. I mean, that's scary. Yes. yes. Uh, again, supposed to be the other, the world's second largest functioning democracy by population, and yet... Yes. I feel like they're on the wrong side here, Joan. Yeah. Actually, they're the the world. Oh, they are the largest. technically the largest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. You're with, right. You're with right. their population, but population. um, and the U.S. You know, when India acquired nuclear weapons, the U.S. made special agreements with India, um, to support them having nuclear weapons rather than to necessarily object to it. And as the U.S. did other countries such as Libya and you know, Iran's pursuit of them. So, you know, we've treated India as a special friend, as the world's largest democracy, but and they're yet, ready to cheat on us. They're ready to cheat on us. They won't, <laughs> they won't support the sanctions, which uh, is very problematic. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and of course, what China decides to do, not so much with regard to sanctions, but simply with regard to whether they supply Russia with military equipment or not. Um, th that's an interesting question. And I think that if China did start even selling Russian military equipment, this provides the opening for Poland or Germany or somebody else to sell those planes to Ukraine. You know, if, if China can sell and not be considered a participant in the war, then why can't some states sell to Ukraine. Indeed, they are selling to Ukraine. But from the perspective of Russia, what can't be sold to them is aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. So um, China, I think, is going, as I said before, I don't see them becoming involved in the war. They continue to offer these murky statements, how they support sovereignty of states. And does that mean that Russia is the correct sovereign in Ukraine or Ukraine is the sovereign? Right. You know, They're being so deliberately you, vague. Right. And on some of the key votes in um, the UN Security Council with regard to this conflict, they've abstained. They not they have not voted on the Russian side. They've abstained. Right. They've abstained for votes that essentially were admonishing yeah. Russia's act. I mean, yeah. doesn't that make clear whose side they're on? I don't know. Kind well, no, because some states voted with Russia. Right. Others abstained. And so I think that um, they want to benefit from the U.S. and sure. Russia using resources there and allowing them to focus on, you know, expanding their interest in South Asia and in the Indo-Pacific region. So here's because one, here's one, here's an additional sort of piggyback question on that. If if China in some ways decides to get involved in as so far as providing military equipment or in some other way assisting Russia, is that enough? What do we do then? Is that because the combined power of those and force of those two countries seems mm -hmm. to be a different beast than just Russia? Right. Well, first of all, I think that um, 
the West, though it would be very difficult, the European Union and the U.S. would have to increase sanctions on China, mm -hmm. um, economic sanctions. And of course, economic sanctions applied against China also hurt the countries applying them. Right. Because you do get goods and services right. from China. Um, and there's what, you know, companies from these countries invested in China, just as, you know, uh, President Putin said, because of these sanctions, he's going to start nationalizing American companies that exist in Russia, but have start, stopped doing business there. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the U.S. and the EU together would have to increase sanctions on China minimally. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. I also, as I said earlier, I believe this, if the, if China is actually selling equipment, military equipment to Russia, that this creates at least an argument by which, you know, not that we need an argument, but, you know, a point by point kind of comparison, a parallel for selling planes to Ukraine. Right. Um, okay, let's, I, I'm wanting to wrap up here because I've kept you so long, Joan, okay. and thank you for your patience here. But just addressing the final part of that question, your um, oh. sort of perception of what could happen next, where we might be in a couple of weeks, a couple of days from now. Well, we're going to see continuing um, high levels of refugee flows out of the country. Um, I think we'll continue to see Putin uh, bombing civilian areas to try to break the morale, um, firebombing them, destroying cities, just creating rubble. Now, that makes it more difficult for his military to take those cities because it creates, it's harder to get tanks in, it's harder to um, identify where the people are. The people mm -hmm. know the landscape better than um the russian military that's invading so and and we might see this guerrilla war then um being waged or this uh, as i said before this resistance war i think will continue um it's very possible within the week there will be a way forward on getting aircraft to ukraine mm-hmm so, I mean, and I hope chemical weapons are not used in the next week, but that's a possibility. I believe that one of the reasons why some individuals in the U.S. government are talking about chemical weapons is that they picked up intelligence discussing yeah. oh, potential use. I mean, that's why, you know, it's in the conversation now. Right. Chemical weapons and nuclear weapons are in the conversation Probably because there's intelligence coming in that that's what Putin's considering next. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you're right. I mean, if, like you said, what hasn't been wrong has been the intelligence so far. I hope that's not the case. And, but, you know, we look forward to keeping updated with you if you're okay with it. Yes. Yes. Um, as this goes on. And um, I know it's an ever changing situation. So thank you for humoring me with a sort of peek <laughs> ahead, but I think that's all, very well supported what you said. And um, we're just going to continue to keep an eye on how things go over. Yeah. There. And, so. and it will be interesting too. I don't, I don't know what president Biden's response will be to the fact that Americans have been killed in Ukraine. Now American yeah. journalists, two right. American journalists. Um, 
what the response will be if, you know, one of these attacks hits Polish territory. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if, you know, I said that the military base which was struck was just 12 miles from Poland. If bombs hit Poland, I don't know how Poland then could, um, what, how Poland could be accused of acting inappropriate, inappropriately if it decided to transfer those MiGs. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but there is also this concern on the part of the Poles and others that the U.S. is 5,000 miles from Russia. Poland, basically the Russians are on Poland's border. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on the border of Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. Now, whether that makes the people of East and Central Europe more inclined to fight Russia now or more inclined to be careful is the question. I think there's, you know, that that within those countries, they have not quite figured it out. They clearly see Russia as a threat. But how best to counter that threat? Do you tempt it? Do you, you know, if there's, you know, if there's a sleeping bear or a sleeping lion, you don't want to poke it in the paw, right? But this is not a sleeping bear or a bear. I mean, it's called the Russian bear. It's not a sleeping bear. It's a raging bear. So do you try to kill it right now? Um, One other, you know, possibility, though I don't see it happening at this point, is, you know, maybe the best hope for Russia, which some people have talked about, is that someone decides to remove or or eliminate President Putin. That's what I was going to say. You hire a sharpshooter. Well, are there people close enough or willing enough? We did not talk about the journalist. How, How frustrated would the military leadership have to be to do something um, it seems as if the military leadership is not making the decisions about the war. It's Putin and his very close confidants who are not military people. They, he was right. KGB pe- person. He's used to doing things subversively and covertly and right. crossing international norms in doing it. So um, I just, you know, is there a way in which he might be removed? I thought about this today and I don't think it's easy. And I think for that to happen, we'd have to, the Russian military would have to endure a lot more losses in Russia before that happened. And and it's not as if, you know, Putin's out on the street shaking hands like a president Obama or Trump or Biden would do. Right. Right. He's sequestered and barely sees any advisors. So the ability to do that is a challenge. But um, I did think that today's the Ides of March when Caesar was. Ooh, <laughs> the poetic right? irony of it all. Let's yeah, see what that, happens. How much farther ahead of us are they? than to- Well, <laughs> and of course, you know, the Russian czars, the word czar, which Putin sees himself in the legacy of the Russian czars. The word czar is actually the Russian word for Caesar. They took that oh. term intentionally for their leadership, seeing themselves as the third Rome with Rome and then Constantinople being the second, and then the Russian czars, the Russian leaders as being the third Caesars. So I thought to myself, well, today's the Ides of March. What might happen? But 
unfortunately, well, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know. we got a couple hours left in that okay. time zone. So we'll see. Um, Joan, thank you for taking time out of your day okay. to bring us up to speed. I think it's so helpful to have these conversations yeah. for people that aren't necessarily buried in news yeah. and headlines to kind of yeah. bring everybody up to speed and um, and all that good stuff. So um, thank you so much. This is I, I did this last time, too. But if you have any social media things okay. you want to shout out or anything you okay. want to say to promote what you're working Not on, go ahead. I, I will just say at this point that I'm, you know, I wish the news could be better. I wish the immediate outlook for Ukraine, the immediate outlook could be cheerier. I wish there could be a clear yeah. way forward for NATO and the United States on this. I think that any decision the U.S. makes, whether it's to have a no-fly zone or not have a no-fly zone, is going to have risk and losses. And I think that's why at this point they're trying to avoid the biggest risk and the biggest right. loss by not having a no-fly zone. But if other types of risk and losses accumulate, maybe they will go that direction. So, so I do have to say, I think that people are thinking about these um, options very carefully, and they recognize that if two people disagree on no-fly zones or sales of jets, that it's not because of a, um, not because they want Ukraine to suffer or Ukraine to be lost. It's because they seriously feel that the costs are too high. And mm -hmm. so it's, I, I think this is just, you know, just a tragic position to be put in to make these decisions. So, yeah, it's a job that not many of us could right. handle. That's for sure. Right. So um, thank you, Joan, so much. Okay. Joan Davison, professor of political science at Rollins College. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into if you watched live this um, special episode of We Gotta Talk, as always. Follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. And we will see you next week with some more good stuff here on We Gotta Talk. Bye-bye.